Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. We are still in the 620s BC, and I can't really leave Assyria yet. We ended last episode with Nabopolassar in control of Babylonia. But Sin Sharaishkun is the Assyrian king now. And he'll remain so until the very end. We know a lot more about him than we know about his brother, who we killed off in the last episode. Right. We have a lot of uh, uh, commemorative inscriptions from Sin Sharaishkun. Hmm. He uh, restored the building of Alabaster at Nineveh, which is probably the west wing of Sennacherib's southwest palace. He worked on the Nabu temple in Ashur. And he had a palace in Kala. And in the Northwest Palace in Kala, they found the economic text dated to this time. And in his inscriptions, he talks about the enemies of Assyria who would not accept my sovereignty. Hmm. And this is perhaps a hint that his succession was contested in 627 by his brother, but also by other forces. And the things I read in Cambridge Ancient History... Imply, we don't know the year he is really in control of Syria, but they make a good case for 623. Okay. He also talks about that he was chosen by the gods for sovereignty instead of his twin brother. Hmm. But this could also be read at as from amongst his brothers. Yeah, that twin word is that's what when I actually the one time Karen Radner responded to an email, right? Thinks I'm a stalker. She said that the word twin, you know, that's, that word is, you know, some people think it means twin and some it means like you said. So, Oh, so it, it could be a, just a brother. Yeah, yeah, because she says she says that Shamashuma Ukin and Ashurbanipal were twins. 
Hmm. She's the only one that I've heard ever say that. Okay, so that's that's a problematic word in the language. Yeah. We know that Asher Banipal was married while he was the crown prince. And that was a long time ago now. That was before 669. Yeah. But uh, there is still the case that Sinchar Ishkun was the real crown prince and that the, the eunuch stuff and the things was a, a civil war. Yeah, and then he was a, maybe the kid was a minor and, you know, he just took over then. But finally he got control of things. Uh, we do have a note from 627 saying that uh, before the death of his father, Sincharishkun commanded troops, which indicates then that he could have been the crown prince. Mm-hmm. And maybe the eunuch was a good general, and not having him wasn't a good thing either, you know? Usually the, the chief eunuch was a general, you know? A lot of kings had a lot of good good uh, eunuchs for generals, and now he's gone. And it's funny that you said they're building all these, you know, he's fixing these this temple and fixing up this palace. In the meantime, there's this huge war going on. He's going to lose the whole empire. Should be building walls. But in the end, he, sh- he chooses to uh, cement his hold on Assyria and give up Babylonia. Yeah. So when, when we leave him at the end of this episode, Sincharishkun is in control of Assyria and Abuplasar is in control of Babylonia. Correct. Gotcha. There are pockets of resistance in Babylonia and they will go on until the six tens. But Nabopolassar will deal with them shortly. All right. So that's where we leave the Assyrians. Okay. And then I think we need to talk about all the other actors in the area, which will all be, they will all be relevant for the 610s. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And there was the the fall of the Scythian kingdom in 625 uh, at the right south of Lake Ermia. And this was an important Assyrian ally. They were destroyed by the Medes. And this, of course, increases the power of the Medes. It also releases a lot of Scythians to go rampaging everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They were, um, and they were, you know, they're Scythians and they were, like we said before, but they're probably, there's different kingdoms and different kings and different parts of them. But Sincharishkun has a super strong ally. Who is it? Semedicus. Oh, Amazing, isn't it? The pharaoh, his the 26th dynasty was put in place by the Assyrians, and he has been having a ball in Egypt. He has brought all these Greeks, he gets 10% tax from them, he can beat up the Nubians with Greek mercenaries. He is he's ruling Egypt from 664 to 610. Wow. He's the pharaoh for 54 years, which sounds almost unbelievable. And, you know, because he's from the north and then he's got all these, like, you know, Greek ways about him and stuff. It's almost like it's almost like an outsider's ruling Egypt, you know, especially he's from the Delta. He's not like, you know, one of the real mystical Egyptians from the south. But compared to the Nubians or the Libyans, he is uh, very Egyptian. Yeah, I guess so. And that's what he's telling people in his propaganda. He's Egyptian and maybe in like, you know, the way he looks and all and acts, but he really acts more like a not, like a globalist, as they may say. <laughs> and Semedicus has been uh, having a very nice time in Egypt during the reign of Ashurbanipal. But now, when the Assyrian Empire starts to crumble, he becomes a really loyal ally. And he sort yeah. of remembers his uh, family's oaths to the Assyrians. Or something, because he will do a lot of things to protect the Assyrians. Yeah, for sure, which we find out in the next couple decades, for sure. It's kind of like they're trying to preserve the balance of power, too, you know? 
Yes, and this is a new superpower. That's after the fall, after Syria has been diminished, maybe Samedicus is the most powerful ruler in the area. Yeah, true. Good point. But he has an invasion by Sidians. Sometimes between 623 and 616, the Sidians rampage through the Levant and they reach Palestine where Samedicus has to deal with them. And the story is that he deals with them by just paying them a lot of money. Yeah, that's what Scythians like. They're like raiders. So no Scythian invasion of Egypt, which is good. And now Samedicus has time to gather his Greek mercenaries and his soldiers and maybe do something useful in the next decade. True. But he's incredibly old at this point. Yeah, he must be. Yeah, you're right. Neko was his father. I mean, with the Greeks there would have helped, but boy, if those Scythians got through, but they would have rampaged in Egypt. And I don't think there is uh, there's anything mentioning that the Scythians were in Judah. Yeah, it's, I know that whole thing must be some kind of raid. I don't know. I think, um, too, though, how would they even eat, fed their horses in Egypt? I don't know. It would have been a rough. <laughs> you know? So I want to talk a bit more about Josiah, okay. the king of Judah. Also a guy with a very long reign. Yeah, like very long. 640 to 609, but these mm-hmm. dates are, of course, problematic. He was a child when he started, but still. Yeah, so he's not uh, super old like Samedicus. Right. The problem with Josiah is that um, nobody talks about him. The Assyrians don't talk about him. The Egyptians don't talk about him. Babylonia doesn't talk about him. Only the Bible talks about him. Because, you know, in all honesty, he wasn't very important in in the scope of things happening in the politics today. I mean, it will be like some small country around, you know, here today. You know, thousands of years from now has the global religion after them. But at the time now, we who? Uh, we don't even have any archaeological evidence. There's no inscriptions bearing his name. And he ruled Judah for 31 years. Yeah. Amazing. I didn't realize we didn't even have any archaeological evidence on Josiah. Interesting. That's a bit strange. Yeah. But he also now sees the power vacuum when Assyria withdraws. And uh, maybe he can do something useful in the next decade as well. Maybe. <laughs> There's something about the kings of Judah, man. They always... Make the wrong choice. And remember that if you read the Bible, we know that Josiah has the Ark of the Covenant still. Oh, does he? That's good. If the Egyptians didn't steal it in the 930s, as we talked about in a very, very old episode. You have to be careful with the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it causes hemorrhoids if you get some tears saying. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I also wanted to mention the uh, Urartians. Poor bastards. Poor Urartu. <laughs> I know. All they've been trying to do, they have been there for so long in the mountains north of Assyria. They have built all these mighty fortresses and roads and like a mini Assyria. At, uh, and at this time, they are not enemies of the Assyrians because they have so many other problems. Right. They're a buffer state, basically. They always kind of, you know, now their buffers being buffed. And it's incredibly hard to date anything in Urartu at this point. Yeah, it's hard to meet Urartan girls, too. So dating is definitely tough. (laughs) Urartu will survive the fall of the Assyrian Empire, but not for long. Uh, Saduri III is probably the king of Urartu. And maybe he's replaced by his son, Rusa III, in 620. But there is an inscription by Rusa III mentioning his father Hmm. as 
Arimina, hmm. which is a very weird name. Yeah, never saw a name like that. So there's a lot of possibilities here that Arimina was the king before him, after Sarduri III, and thus ruled in the 620s in Urartu. Or maybe Rusa III established a new dynasty, and his father wasn't a king. Mm-hmm. And there's Cimmerians been in, been messing around in there for decades already. Yes, and the Scythians, and yeah. the Manians, and the Medes. Yeah, everybody from the steppes is just heading in there, is just attacking the Rurartans. They're just pushing them, just getting pushed. You know what it probably is? It's probably because of the chin. The chin are pushing those barbarians that way, and they're move, moving all the way to Urartu. Oh no, walls in China, let's go to Urartu. <laughs> you know, it's like a domino effect. There are more walls in Urartu than in China at this point. I know. Then I wanted to mention Cyrus of Persia. Yeah? It's not Cyrus the Great. Oh. It's Cyrus the First of okay. Persia, the king of Anshan. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy is incredibly hard to date. Uh, actually, his reign starts in 600 or 652, yeah. according to different sources. Yeah. It's like, that, that doesn't compute at all. They're real hard. Yeah, you're right. But he is an early member of the Akinamid. Akinamid? Yeah, something like that. Dynasty. Which is the Great Dynasty, yeah. where Cyrus the Great will come from. And uh, so he's the King of Anshan. He has been an Assyrian vassal for a long time. He has been uh, trying to stop being an Assyrian uh, vassal at some point. Didn't go very well. Yeah. So when Ashurbanipal dies, he uh, continues paying tribute. to First Ashur Etililani, and then to Sincharishkun. Okay. Because uh, he needs the Assyrians as well. Yeah. Because he has a bigger problem. Cyaxarus of Media. Uh-huh. Because the Medes, they overran the Scythians. And now they're getting really powerful. They have thrown off the Assyrian joke at this point. I think that they, they, com- I think that they finally um, sort of combined. Yes, but at this point they seem to not have combined yet. I mean, they, they were getting, the, the Herodotus says the five tribes, this is sort of the time. I remember, they, it's like you said with the dating, you get like 650 and you get 600. It's hard to say that the, but you know, the, the Magi we talked about real quick in the beginning, those were, they're Medes. They were, they were a tribe of the Medes. Yeah. But it seems that the Persians are not under control of the Medes yet. Okay. But, uh, and they will be, as far as I know now, I look into this much closer in the sixth tense, but they don't seem to be present at the final battle of Assyria. Okay, right. I, I just meant the Medes are getting together, and not so then the Persians have an issue with them, and that's why the Scythians, the Medes, I think, finally realize they can't be these loose confederation, but all these people keep coming beating them up. Exactly. They're, the Medes are like sort of in between like farming and city people, sort of, and the steppe people, because they, they, they were good horsemen. You know, they had horses and they were, you know, they were warriors too. So, you know, getting them together was probably a good idea for them. Cyrus is eventually succeeded at some point by his son, Cambyses I. And his son is Cyrus the Great. So we are getting pretty close to Cyrus. It's great. Amazing, right? Isn't it? When you think about like, we're, we feel so far back from Cyrus, but his grandfather's around now. But uh, the person sources are very bad at this point yeah. so 
there's a lot and these dates that you you don't know when it actually rained and maybe his father can buy this very late in life and died really old but it seems weird yeah that would seem odd especially if he was his firstborn and maybe there is an Assyrian mention of Kuras which people take to be Cyrus oh but it, it could be that they are two different people yeah but we'll talk more about the Persians. Oof. Indeed we will. So let's go to... Is this the real pronunciation in English? Cyaxerus? I think so. Cyaxerus. That sounds good. The king of Media. He threw out the Scythians. And now the world is open to him. Way to go, Cyaxerus. And interestingly, he is the great-grandfather of Cyrus the Great. Amazing. Because there will be a joining of houses. Yeah, there's some good stories in there. <laughs> you guys probably some of them know them. And Cyrus will be with us for a long time because he will be ruling the Medes until 585. Okay. So this is the, the leader of the Medes for all upcoming things for a long time. He's going to have some adventures. Jerusalem will even fall before Cyrus uh, does. I was thinking the same exact thing. The, his relationship to the Scythians uh, seems to be complicated mm -hmm. because uh, after he overthrew the Scythians, he seems to have Scythians in his service. Yes. So he is working some good uh, diplomacy here. Yeah, the Scythians were like tribes too, you know. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the, you know, when you if you study like the colonies in America and the Indian tribes, and then, you know, they work the tribes against each other. And they, but they were all, you know, a certain way, like they took scalps. The Scythians took scalps. That was like a thing they did. They'd scalp people. But, you know, doesn't mean that one tribe can't be against another tribe. I have to mention how he overthrew the Scythians. Oh, tell me. The, it wasn't a battle. He had been a loyal uh, subject of the Scythians for some time. Okay. And uh, then he invited them to a party. That's right. Tell me. Yes. <laughs> This is all uh, quite legendary then, and we don't, we're not sure this happened. But it was the Red Wedding. Yes. He murdered all of the Scythian rulers after getting them drunk. Yes, because that's the only way you could beat Scythians, because they are badasses. And the legends also tell that Cyaxerus, as soon as he gained power in media, he started preparing for the final conflict. He knew how much his people had suffered at the Syrian hands. Yes. And he wanted to get rid of the empire. So this is the other great smith of the Assyrian Armageddon. Yeah. So as soon as he starts ruling, he organizes the army. The, the Medes have been barbarians all this time. But now there is a regular army. He steals the model from the Assyrians and also from the Urartians, who stole it from the Assyrians. Yes. And of course, he's fighting Urartu as well. But now he has a regular army, which is a lot better than what the Medes had earlier. And that's where we leave him in 620. Yeah. Cyaxerus building a new superpower in Iran. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, they're, they're, the Assyrians should be uh, cranking up their intelligence services now and marrying off people and not be building palaces. They should be really looking out, but... I remember, that's what I know what I want to say. I, I, before we did the podcast together and I used to listen to it, and then I would listen, then before we did, I listened a lot. And I was, so many episodes you said, you would say, 
And then what did they happen? They went and beat up on the Medes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now it's time for revenge. Exactly. Like so many episodes. Here's it. And today, and now the Assyrians, guess where they went? To beat up some Medes. <laughs> and now the Medes will come for them. Yep. Like the Patriots and the Bills. You can't keep doing it. You're going to come back. Do you even remember the Manians? Yeah, he used to beat up on them too. And they're the people that they have a lot of horses as well. Yes, and they're also in the, that uh, Rortian, Scythian, Median, Persian mess, yep. which is Iran. Yep, probably Zoroastrians. And they will try to resist the Medes Okay. at this point, but uh, they are not as powerful. And maybe they have a king called Uali at this point. All right. Or maybe not. And that's yeah. all I can say about the Manians. Yeah. Very loose confederations, a lot of these were. And then I will jump to an unexpected place. Where? Italy. Oh! Remember that I promised that the Romans will enter our narrative in 616 BC. That is the next decade. I know. You're gonna, I'm going to need some help from you. But we still have legendary kings doing legendary... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Stuff and... I will make the case that Rome enters history as an Etruscan city in 616 BC. So now I want to talk about the Etruscans. Please. The Etruscans have been under Greek influence for a long time, just like the Romans later. So the Greeks have been colonizing nearby, traveling by sea, talking to the Etruscans, teaching them stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems that the the territory of the Etruscan civilization was at its maximum around 750 BC. Okay. And it was loosely organized in three confederacies of cities. Etruria, that is Tuscany, Latium, and Umbria. Of the Po Valley with the Eastern Alps and Campania. Okay. But they will start to go into League of Twelve Cities. Oh, okay. Twelve Etruscan cities, all independent, were working together. And that's how we will encounter them in 616 BC. Okay. Hesiod, you know, our man. I like Hesiod, yeah. 
Yeah, he is the first Greek author to mention the Etruscans. Okay. He calls him the Tyrrhenians, the Tyrrhenian Sea, you know. The, oh, the yes, right, Tyrrhen. right. And he says that they are uh, residing in central Italy alongside the Latins, which is probably true. Well, whereas the, the Latins are barbarians compared to the Etruscans, who have a fairly civilized society. Yeah. Except for the gladiator games and uh, those things. And a language we still cannot read. Mm-hmm. Homer also mentions them. Some people think that they were the Trojans, you know? That's sort of the myth, right? Because the Romans are the Trojans, and if the Romans are the Etruscans... Yes, but they, they are not. We know that since 2013 when we did DNA studies on the Etruscans. Yeah. So they are indigenous to... Uh, and we've been talking about uh, the Villanovans since the start of this podcast. Yeah. They are the Villanovans. And they're indigenous to Italy. Uh, the, the myth that they come from the East actually appears later, after the 6th century. Uh, Homer mentions them and just says that they are pirates. Ah. So they maybe they had seafaring as well. I'm sure, yeah. And just think about just what we said about the horned helmet. And it's about from this time, you know, this 9th century, whatever. And then, you know, that the Phoenicians are probably sailing around there and the Etruscans and... I don't think the Etruscans were seafarers because if they were, the Romans would have been better at naval warfare. <laughs> they suck at it. Yeah, that's true. But they I bet they were trading like with Sardinia and Corsica and I know all that area there. Mm, funny that you mentioned Sardinia. I will talk about Sardinia very shortly. And it has no Etruscans. No, but it has. But Sardinia is a cool little place. Yeah, we'll go, I'll wait for you to talk about it. So formerly the Etruscans are in the Orientalized orientalizing period the middle orientalizing period which ends in 625 bc and gives way to the later orientalizing period (laughs) but i think the etruscans are land-based and they get their their sea things from the greeks and didn't didn't they have um aqueducts too didn't they teach the romans how to build aqueducts or they were romans and they would already know i do not know yeah i think so i have a neighbor who's a he's like a he's a He's 80 years old, but you wouldn't think it. He's a riot. And we were sitting with him one day and he goes, he's an Italian guy. And he goes, whatever happened to the Etruscans? <laughs> and so I looked it up and they're very interesting. As they basically become assimilated by the Romans yeah. later. They're also into um, augury, which is like uh, the bird, you know, like they would um, read portents in the sky by the way, the patterns of birds. Yeah. Basically all the weird things in Roman society comes from the Etruscans. Perfect. Everything Greek... Everything that isn't Greek comes from the Etruscans. Gotcha. So we have Greeks traveling all over the Mediterranean. Yeah. But there is another power, another power of great seafaring ability. Mm-hmm. Carthage. Oh, God, yeah. And Phoenicia. But the power center of Phoenicia is now Carthage. Yeah. And stuff is hard to date in Carthage at this point because the conflicts with the Greeks haven't really begun yet. They will. But um, there seems to be a Carthaginian colony in Sardinia. But it's extreme. The first archaeological finds from like anybody who is not from there is from uh, is Phoenician finds. But they are not many. Oh, okay. I hear what you're saying. Anybody that's not from there is right. So the Phoenicians are all over that area. Right. So it seems that Carthage actually, or Phoenicia, had a, a colony in Sardinia. Yeah, Sardinia was definitely its own little 
world. That's where those helmets, I, those helmets are Sardinian helmets. I have, I've seen, before I ever saw that picture, I saw Sardinian helmets and they look just like that. But there is another much more important place that the Carthaginians are all over at this point. Where? Spain. Oh. I don't know if the Greeks are around there, but if the Greeks are around, they are not a huge thing. Yeah, not yet. Not as a huge thing, anyway. That's all the way to the end of the world. You know, that's the gates of Hercules once you hit the, you know, the Barack of Gibraltar over there. Um, I don't know if you, if I ever told you this, but my working plan is to retire in Sardinia. Oh, never yeah. been there. Not me neither, but I'm liking it. You could come visit me. We could do a live podcast from Sardinia. That's my plan. Phoenician found hundred percent. But there's so many archaeological sites there. The Nergotic, Nergog. Um, they're they're they don't know what they are. They they could have been one of the sea peoples. There's a lot of cool, and it's beautiful there too. Coming from where we, I come from, northeast United States, and you, Sweden, Sardinia is a freaking paradise, weather-wise. Remember, we mentioned back in the 900s BC that there were Phoenicians in Spain already. But they have been busy, and the Greeks have noticed this as well. Mm-hmm. So there is a Greek notice in 630 BC that there, there's a cargo of silver coming in from Spain. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, there's a lot of mines in Spain. Mm-hmm. And later Strabo uh, informs us that the Phoenicians have a monop- monopoly on Spanish mines. Mm-hmm. I could believe that. There is mining going on in Spain. And they probably like like um, like when we did the episode on the you know we talked with the Rob Mailhammer, like they probably had a trading point port there and had the mines and they were sort of the ruling class, but they didn't really colonize it. Exactly. Right. So there are two very good rivers to get far into Spain mm-hmm. that the uh, Carthaginians used. Okay. And they could get like fifty or eighty-five kilometers inland. And we, we find a lot of Phoenician uh, archaeology stuff yeah. there. And that's all they needed. And they are there for the mining. Yes. But eventually they will colonize Spain. But uh, of course the Phoenicians, or the Carthaginians rather, are already at this point operating like a company. They are only interested in profit. Yeah. They don't care about conquest. Right. As much as other cultures. They care about profit. And there right. is profit in Spain. Yes. Maybe it's all those baby sacrifices. They didn't have a giant population explosion. The baby sacrifices are a fact. Yeah. But I don't know if they occurred this early. I probably did because the Phoenicians did it. We know from the Bible and then the Carthaginians, you know, I, they, I mean, I don't know that they were killing all their babies, but I would, I, in my opinion, they probably was already a thing. But I don't think that's why they didn't. But also, there was probably a lot of room in Africa there to expand. You know, just think of the Greeks. They would just constantly run out of room and they would have to move out. But these guys were just, they were business people. It's kind of like the, um, maybe like the Portuguese back in the day, you know, the age of discovery. The Carthaginians are, are never interested in going inland in Africa. So they're right. seafarers. Um, they do have, we have a clear evidence of Phoenician settlements in uh, Malaga in 700 B.C., Okay. And this Spanish silver shows up all over the Mediterranean. Even in uh, with the Etruscans, huh. they seem to import silver from Phoenicia. Again, the world is connected. Very connected. 
it's hard at this point to know if we should talk about Cartage or the Phoenicians, but th- all of this comes mainly from Cartage. That is at least my impression. Yeah. Some historians just call it Phoenicians. They'll keep calling Carthage the Phoenicians like through the through like way longer. You know, and we do know that they said Phoenicians would not would not attack Carthage during the Persian Empire. The Phoenician sailors refused to. And uh, thus Carthage was safe. Yeah. So I you know, they're probably the same language. And you know, and maybe like I said, I think I said it before, maybe like New York and I should say, like you know, yeah, New York and London. Let's say, you know, like we're we're we still speak the same language. We're sort of the United States and England is sort of like you know two different countries, but you don't see the United States invade in England. We talk a lot about uh, all the colonies the Greek uh, the Greek sets up, but the Cartage is by far the most successful colony anybody ever set up no in kidding. the Mediterranean. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like it's like New York, you know, it's like, well, I'm gonna make the biggest city there is for sure. Yeah, it will be. I mean, it's good that you get into it now because it's, you know, we don't have any dates on things, but we can't just have this massive Carthaginian, you know, event and then say, ah, oh, here they came out of nowhere. We also find uh, Carthaginians in Portugal. Really? Yes. So they went into the Atlantic and went up the coast. Right. So then that's how we know that they were probably in Germany there, like that episode we did, that they were probably in, in that area. And and your in your place, they came right around. And there is a find of uh, Irish spearheads in Spain, and Irish cauldrons in Spain. Really, I remember that the most uh, the best tin mines were in Britain. I do remember that too. Yes, and it's likely that the Cartaginians are actually trading with with the British Isles. What kind of trip is that? Do you think on one of those ships? Well, I guess it shows that the Phoenicians are the best seafarers of this time. I mean, how long would it take? And God, the danger of being in a ship like that and just with oars in the Atlantic? In the 4th century AD, there is a work, Festus Avinius Ora Maritima, where they make a lot of claims about how far the Carthaginians went into the Atlantic. Hmm. But... um, We'll uh, come back to that when we talk about Hanno, the navigator, oh, okay. who perhaps circumnavigated Africa yeah, and also invented the word, the word gorilla. Uh, I was just thinking about the gorillas. Don't spoil it. That's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> yes. I love we that. won't spoil the, uh, the gorillas. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and uh, yeah, I'll end with uh, reminding you that uh, a small city-state in Italy will enter our story in the next decade. It's Rome! Yeah. 616 BC. With an Etruscan as a king. I'm going to have to do a lot of research because I haven't even got touched on that. I've only had the um, mystical kings, which Dan doesn't let me talk about. (laughs) No, let's not talk about them. This is a real king. Yeah. Of course, in his story, there is a relation to the legendary king before him, but we'll we'll talk about that in the sixth tense. Well, I'm going to definitely uh, get on that. You might have to help me with some some of your sources. I uh, you have a note at the end of the script here about uh, Thales of Miletus. Oh, look! At, we put him. I moved him too far at the end. We missed uh, Thales. The, all right, let's, let's get him in him. there. This will end. We'll end on Thales. He. This is. Um, like I said, these 600s, there's a lot of this stuff that will happen later. They're being 
born now and they're going to move into you know our history so he's what you call pre-socratic philosophers of ancient greece he may be the first one the um, first ones was, were from miletus aristotle calls him the father of greek philosophy he's one of the seven sages of greece he's very interesting i'm going to just say a couple of things because he's another one we could talk about him a little later because he's just born now so I'll just give you. So he's historically recognized as the first individual in Western civilization known to engage in scientific philosophy. He's recognized for breaking from the use of mythology to explain the world and the universe. I mean, that's really important. I mean, people still freaking do that today. I know. It drives me nuts. But, you know, officially we don't. But like, here we got 600 B.C. He's like, let's explain the world how it is, not like a god and all this other stuff, you know. So, um He's um, almost all the other pre-Socratic philosophers followed him in explaining nature as deriving from a unity of everything based on the existence of a single ultimate substance instead of using mythological explanations. And for Thales, it was water. You know, some have fire, water, earth. And, you know, of course, we go down to the atom and quarks today and stuff. But Thales said, you know, it was water, which is a good point. I mean, everything dissolves in water, right? He's also the first known individual to use deductive reasoning applied to geometry. He's the first known individual to whom a mathematical discovery has been attributed. I think I attributed a mathematical discovery to an Indian in 900 BC, but that was fairly uncertain. All right. Well, you probably could be correct. Maybe he's the first Greek. <laughs> yes. You know, obviously somebody had a mathematical discovery because they built things. It's so I'm just going to leave it out, but Thales, so this one will do it because he predicted the solar eclipse of May 28, 585 BC. He predicted it. Oh, it, it's that solar eclipse, right? Yeah, there's one other thing. He measured the shadow of the pyramids or something. Okay. Yeah, so he did a lot of cool things. Well, let's, let's dwell on that breaking from the use of mythology. That's an enormous achievement. Enormous, really, when you think about it. Probably no one in the world has done that before him and they i really think they be really believed it like they really believed in their religion things you know like they weren't just pragmatic they they had to do these rituals they had to check the portents before you went to battle you you went to war for your gods i just yeah well, this is a this is a break and they say history is i read a, i might have posted it too they you know history is is made by Inventions by really freaking smart people who then just take, you know, like you need these these spurts of a creativity or genius from just one person. Like somebody invented farming somewhere. Somebody invented metallurgy, fire. Like, you know, this guy started saying, hey, we don't have to just have gods. You know, we maybe there's a natural reason. And then he's a pre-Socratic. And then all these Greek philosophers go Thales. Go Thales. Imagine Homo sapiens sapiens has probably been around for 300,000 years when Thales appears. And none of us had thought about this before. Right. I bet somebody did, but maybe nobody wrote about it. So they get smashed in the head with a rock or something. Well, there's a problem if you were like in 60,000 BC and you couldn't write down anything. <laughs> no, you didn't. Some guy said something in 60,000 BC and it just like, made him get trampled by a mammoth. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end this episode with the 60,000 BC philosopher getting trampled by a mammoth <laughs> <laughs> that was a sad day for humanity it was you know what we would be so we'd be in the stars by now <laughs> 
Yes. He invented writing, and they're like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> Would be in hyperspace by now. Totally. Probably a Neanderthal, too, and his, their whole race went out. We'll be in the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, don't let me get going. You know, I'll never stop talking about silly stuff. I'll uh, mention my uh, this the sister podcast to this podcast. I do make a podcast called Fan of Astronomy. It has been on ice for a while, and uh, but uh, it's still there. So you can find Fan of Astronomy, where me and Angelo talk about astronomy, my other great interest. I'll have to check that out myself sometime. I have to be. I have to. I have to apologize. I haven't checked it out, but I'm going to make a note of it to check that out today, for sure. Uh, there was a terror attack on my street in 2017. In one of the episodes, I that just happened. <laughs> I'm no. not talking about it. That doesn't have anything to do with astronomy, but yeah. Also, check out our uh, Facebook and follow me on Instagram, Dan Horning with two dots over the O, where I talk about all my podcasts and mostly in Swedish, but some English. You could follow the Facebook page, which I manage, and you could send messages there, which I check, and I, I appreciate the guy, you guys who have. Um, people share stuff with me once in a while, and I would, um, you know, please keep it up. I, I enjoy it. When I, I don't really go on Facebook personally, but when I go on, you know, I go on for fan of history, and if I see a message from somebody, I am actually excited. So please don't. I mean, just like, I, you know, we mentioned the Danelli Bellelli podcast. I mean, he's like a really famous guy, too. And I just like, let me message him, see if he'll talk to me. And he did. So I'm not even a famous guy, and I'll definitely talk to you. So <laughs> send me a message. <laughs> also remember our Patreon. That's what keeps us going. Yeah. No, actually, it isn't what keeps us going. It's our enthusiasm. But That's we true. do love a contribution as well. Yes. Patreon slash final history. Yes. I do appreciate it. I'm using the mic that you Patreons bought me. Oh, we did the 620s. So we are moving on to the fall of the Assyrian oh, Empire man, and, and some guys in Italy. Yeah, but man, you've been waiting for this for a long time, haven't you? Eight years. Oh, my gosh. Oh, we'll do a good job on it. Oh, oh, this will be great. Awesome. All right, everybody. And Dan, appreciate it. Nice to talk to you, Dan. Always a pleasure, Bernie. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Poor guy getting trampled by mammoth. I know. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.